This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Growing in the Meekness of Christ's Spirit. In the first half, Elder David A. Bednar shares his address, Walk in the Meekness of My Spirit. Then in the second half, Corey W. Leonard speaks on By Persuasion, Long-Suffering, Meekness, and Love. I want to begin my message today by describing two important times of transition in my life that occurred on campuses sponsored by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The first transition started in 1970 here at BYU. I attended San Leandro High School in the East Bay Area of California from 1967 to 1970. It was a turbulent time with anti-Vietnam War protests, political assassinations, and social upheaval. The Haight-Ashbury District in San Francisco and Telegraph Avenue near the campus of the University of California at Berkeley were two major epicenters of dramatic drug, music, sexual, and cultural revolutions. Only a few Latter-day Saints attended my high school, and my ward had a very small group of youth. I moved into Helaman Halls in August of 1970 and quickly became acquainted with many remarkable LDS young men and young women. That fall semester was a life-changing time for me because of spiritually impactful sacrament meetings and service in my student ward, stimulating academic classes and supportive teachers, and a strong brotherhood that developed with my dorm friends as we played intramural sports, talked late into the night, and perpetuated typical freshman pranks and practical jokes. My experience at BYU was spiritually strengthening, intellectually enlarging, character building, I hope, and a preparation for lifelong learning and service. And most important of all, I met Susan Robinson on this campus after I returned home from my mission in 1973. She has been the love of my life for almost 43 years. The second transition started in 1997. Susan and I moved to Rexburg, Idaho, following an academic career spanning 20 years at three different universities. As I prepared for the fall semester in my new position as the president of then Ricks College, I remember my reaction when my secretary informed me about an annual Temple Day for staff and faculty at which I was to speak. I looked at her and asked quizzically, Can we do that? She responded quizzically, You do know this is a church school, don't you? (laughs) Attending a temple session with staff and faculty colleagues was a wonderfully new and energizing experience. The overt linking of spiritual enlightenment and intellectual inquiry was thrilling and, of course, had not been a part of my work at the public universities where I was a graduate student and faculty member. During my years of service in Rexburg, I experienced in powerful ways the spirit of the charge given to Carl G. Mazur by Brigham Young when this university in Provo was founded. Quote, I want you to remember that you ought not teach even the alphabet or the multiplication tables without the Spirit of God. 
the weekly devotionals, praying and using the scriptures in class, and witnessing the deep devotion of faithful and competent staff and faculty members helped me to see with new eyes and to hear with new ears. My experience at Ricks College, now BYU-Idaho, was spiritually strengthening, intellectually enlarging, character-building, I hope, and a preparation for lifelong learning and service. In these key times of transition in my life, I was blessed to study, learn, work, and grow at institutions of higher education sponsored by the Lord's Restored Church. The Spirit of the Lord was invited and appreciated on these campuses and enabled learning environments that were spiritually stimulating, supportive, and vibrant. The contrast with the other settings where I had studied and worked could not have been more stark. I provide this personal background as context for my message this morning. My purpose is to affirm and then build upon President Worthen's emphasis upon inspiring learning. I earnestly pray for the assistance of the Holy Ghost as I share with you my thoughts and the feelings of my heart about Brigham Young University. In his university conference message one year ago, President Worthen reiterated the overarching purposes of Brigham Young University. I will quote extensively from President Worthen's remarks. I will not have the typical quote, close quote. He said, I hope that what occupies a good portion of our hearts and minds is the role we are to play in assisting our students in their quest for perfection and eternal life. The mission statement makes it clear that our primary role in that process is to help our students learn. We are to provide them a period of intensive learning. President Worthing continued, The mission statement indicates that above all else, our students should learn the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In addition, they should experience learning that is broad, learning that enables them to think clearly, communicate effectively, understand important ideas in their own cultural tradition as well as that of others, and establish clear standards of intellectual integrity. He also described the importance of inspiring learning. He said, inspiring is both a noun and an adjective. The noun can be defined as the act of inspiring or motivating. In this sense, the term inspiring learning describes actions that inspire or motivate students to learn. As an adjective, inspiring is a modifier. In this context, it describes a kind of learning, learning that inspires, or more precisely, in our setting, learning that leads to inspiration or revelation. He continues, When I use the term inspiring learning, I have in mind both meanings of the word inspiring. I hope we inspire our students to learn, and I hope that learning leads to inspiration. When both things happen, inspiring learning occurs, and we can then know we are on the right track to achieve the core goals set forth in our mission statement. President Worthen then added, Let me suggest that one way we can enhance the quality of inspiring learning at BYU is to expand both the quantity and quality 
of the kind of learning that occurs outside the formal classroom, the kind of instruction that many call experiential learning. Just like classroom learning, experiential learning can produce the kind of inspiring learning that our mission statement challenges us to provide. He also stated, Students cannot learn all they need to learn by memorizing or even discussing principles in a classroom, as exhilarating as that may be. Experience connects theory with application and deepens our understanding of the principles and truths we learn. And in my view, President Worthen said, experiential learning can be inspiring learning in both senses of that term. It can both inspire students to deeper learning and be the type of learning that leads to inspiration. That concludes my extensive quoting of President Worthen. The blessings of the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost and the spiritual gift of revelation are central to President Worthen's inspired emphasis on inspiring and experiential learning. Worthiness to receive revelation and the faith to act upon the revelation we receive are key in these learning processes. And each of us should be drawing closer to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. In our personal lives and in the performance of our university duties, you and I have the responsibility to do nothing that would constrain these heavenly powers from blessing those whom we serve. I am confident the Lord will magnify us individually and institutionally as we strive sincerely to respond to President Worthen's direction. As I studied President Worthen's teachings, my mind was drawn to several experiences in the life of the Prophet Joseph Smith. All of Joseph's learning was inspiring and experiential. Four years were required for Joseph to learn and comply with the conditions specified by Moroni for obtaining the golden plates and commencing the work of translation. Each annual visit to the Hill Cumorah was a remarkable learning experience with Joseph's heavenly tutor. In a matter of weeks in 1828, Joseph and Emma lost their first child and faced the possibility that Emma also might die. And at about the same time, Joseph discovered that the manuscript pages given to Martin Harris had been lost. These experiences provide the background for the revelatory rebuke and reassurance we know today as Section 3 in the Doctrine and Covenants. This revelation is filled with important lessons for the young prophet and for us. These difficult but essential experiences early in Joseph's ministry were necessary for him to learn the principles and patterns through which and by which his prophetic work would be accomplished. And the lessons continued throughout his life. In 1839, as Joseph pleaded in prayer from Liberty Jail for the welfare of the suffering saints, the Lord instructed, Know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. I believe this scripture describes the ultimate value of experiential learning. The revelations teach us that the glory of God is intelligence, 
Now, typically, we may think the word intelligence in this scripture denotes innate cognitive ability or a particular gift for academic work. In this verse, however, one of the meanings of intelligence is the application of knowledge for righteous purposes. As President David O. McKay taught, quote, The learning for which the Church stands is the application of knowledge to the development of a noble and godlike character. Close quote. We are blessed in mortality with endless opportunities to apply what we learn and know for righteousness or to increase in intelligence. And learning from experience is one of the primary vehicles provided in the Father's plan of happiness to accomplish this eternally important outcome. Consequently, we should not equate intelligence exclusively with formal education, academic degrees, or professional success. Some of the most educated people I have ever known had little or no intelligence. And some of the most intelligent people I have ever known had little or no formal education. The Prophet Joseph Smith is a prime example of an uneducated person who learned from experience and was filled with the light and truth of intelligence. I hope now to build upon President Worthen's teachings about inspiring and experiential learning by examining the content and sequence of important concepts in two related scriptures. Verse 1. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. This verse contains two instructions from the Savior. Take his yoke upon us and learn of him. He next describes himself as meek and lowly in heart. And he promises that as we follow his teachings, we shall find rest unto our souls. The sequence of concepts in this scripture is yoke, learn, meek, and rest. Importantly, the Lord in this sequence first introduces the example of a yoke. A yoke is a wooden beam normally used between a pair of oxen or other animals that enables them to pull together on a load. A yoke places animals side by side so they can move together to accomplish a task. Now, please consider the Lord's uniquely individual invitation to take my yoke upon you. We are yoked to and with the Lord Jesus Christ as we worthily enter into and faithfully honor sacred covenants. The Savior beckons us to rely upon and pull together with Him, even though our best efforts are not equal to and cannot be compared with His. As we trust in and pull our load with Him, the Savior's Atonement makes possible the greatest experiential learning lessons of our lives, because His yoke truly is easy and His burden is light. Please remember the revealer of the sublime sentence, All these things shall give thee experience, and shall be for thy good, was he who experientially descended below all things, and had trodden the winepress alone. The Savior's meekness and perfect walk before all mankind, even in those times of severe persecutions and abuse, 
which were heaped upon him by a wicked and adulterous generation, qualify him as the perfect teacher from whom we are to learn the lessons of eternity. Verse number two, learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit and you shall have peace in me. This verse contains three instructions from the Savior. Learn of him, listen to his words, and walk in the meekness of his spirit. And he promises that as we follow his counsel, we shall have peace in him. The sequence of concepts in this scripture is learn, listen, walk in meekness, and peace. The sequence of learning and meekness in these two scriptures is important and instructive. Interestingly, meekness is the attribute mentioned in both verses immediately before the promised blessings. And the phrase, walk in the meekness of my spirit after the admonition to learn and listen, is especially germane to inspiring and experiential learning. Brothers and sisters, we can only learn of him as we ever strive to become more like him and walk in the meekness of his spirit. I reiterate again, the Holy Ghost and the spiritual gift of revelation are essential for inspiring and experiential learning. And walking in the meekness of the Lord's spirit is one of the principal means for seeking these supernal blessings. Meekness is not weak, timid, or passive. Meekness is the quality of being God-fearing, righteous, teachable, patient in suffering, and willing to follow gospel teachings. A meek person is not easily provoked or irritated, pretentious, arrogant, or overbearing. Whereas humility generally denotes acknowledging dependence upon God and receptivity to counsel and correction— A distinguishing characteristic of meekness is a particular willingness to learn both from the Holy Ghost and from other people who may seem less experienced or capable, may not hold prominent positions, or otherwise may not appear to have much to contribute. Two examples illustrate this unique element of meekness. The first episode involves President Henry B. Eyring. The second episode involves Elder Dallin H. Oaks. First episode. I worked extensively with President Eyring during the transformation of Ricks College from a two-year junior college to the university known today as BYU-Idaho. At the time, he was a member of the Twelve and the Commissioner of Church Education. Elder Eyring visited Rexburg to assess the progress of the transition. During our time together, I shared with him a status report on student enrollment projections, physical facilities, renovations and construction projects, hiring of new employees, and many other topics. And we devoted considerable time to reviewing the financial resources and timeline necessary for the success of the transition. During our time together, it became apparent that Elder Eyring and I had differing interpretations of the total resource package that had been approved by the Church Board of Education for the transition. We worked together to come to a common understanding, but were not successful. 
I then indicated my willingness to do whatever the brethren directed. But I also explained that fewer resources would necessitate the transition plan and timeline to be scaled back accordingly. We ended our work day together without achieving a final resolution. Elder Iring spent the night in our home. When he came to the kitchen for breakfast the next morning, his first statement was, President, I was rebuked by the Holy Ghost last night. He then indicated that the transition should continue going forward as outlined the previous day, and he had no ongoing concerns about the resources. He then said to me, President, if you have not been rebuked lately by the Holy Ghost as you are praying, then you need to improve your prayers. I have never forgotten this. Given his extensive experience in institutions of higher education, his position as a member of the Twelve, and his authority as the commissioner of the church educational system, he simply could have decided, this is how it's going to be. But he did not do that. Elder Iring learned of and from the Savior. He listened to his words that came by the power of the Holy Ghost. And then he walked in the meekness of the Lord's Spirit. I learned valuable lessons about meekness through this experience with Elder Iring. Such meekness is essential for inspiring and experiential learning. Second episode. Elder Dallin H. Oaks has served as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles for 33 years. He is both faithful and fearless. In one of our quorum meetings, Elder Oaks expressed a strong opinion about a course of action that he believed should be pursued. The reasons he articulated were convincing, and his knowledge about the issue was extensive. His arguments in favor of the action were compelling. As we counseled together, a less senior member of the Twelve expressed agreement with the basic course of action, but registered a reservation about the proposed timing. Now, Elder Oaks is incapable of even having such a thought, but he could have countered the concern with a response such as, I believe I know more about this matter than you do. But he did not. With no hint of defensiveness or indignation, Elder Oaks asked his quorum member, Would you please help me understand your reservation about the timing? After listening intently to his apostolic associate, Elder Oaks pondered for a moment and then said, The point made by Elder is valid. I had not considered the timing implications of this action in the way he has and I am persuaded the proposal should be reworked based on what we have learned in this discussion. Elder Oaks learned of and from the Savior. He listened to his words that came through the voice of a fellow quorum member, and he then walked in the meekness of the Lord's Spirit. I learned valuable lessons about meekness through this experience with Elder Oaks. Such meekness is essential for inspiring and experiential learning. I believe knowing something more about Elder Oaks may help you to hear with new ears the counsel he has given on this campus over the past several years. 
Elder Oaks presently serves on the Church Board of Education and as the chair of the Church Educational System Executive Committee. He is a disciple scholar and is uniquely qualified and positioned to help this university accomplish its sacred purposes. And Elder Oaks has raised an authoritative and sustaining voice to Elder Worthen's emphasis upon the fundamental mission of Brigham Young University. Recently, Elder Oaks has addressed challenging and hard issues in several BYU leadership conferences with the deans, associate deans, and department chairs. I now reiterate five of those issues. One, acknowledging the reality that the mission of Brigham Young University will not be attained in exactly the same way that other universities have achieved their greatness. It will become the great university of the Lord, not in the world's way, but in the Lord's way. Two, aligning all aspects of the work performed at BYU even more closely with the purposes of our Heavenly Father. Three, resisting the external pressures that would prevent or impede the attainment of our church and institutional goals. Four, encouraging BYU faculty and other employees to offer public, unassigned support of church policies that are challenged on secular grounds. Five, inviting serious consideration of and adjustment to the patterns of what and how we measure student learning and faculty research and publication. Elder Oaks can speak to these challenges in such a direct and clear way precisely because he left his professional and scholarly nets in response to the Lord's call to serve as a special witness of his name in all the world. He has learned of and from the Savior. He listens to his voice and he walks in the meekness of his spirit. I admonish you to review and heed his counsel and instruction. During discussions in the Quorum of the Twelve, President Boyd K. Packer often would ask, Therefore, what? I understood his question to mean, So what spiritually significant difference will this idea, proposal, or course of action make in the lives of Church members? Will it actually bless those whom we serve? He was inviting us to consider the value and long-term implications of the matter about which we were counseling. I have found the question, therefore what, to be most helpful in focusing my thinking about an issue and in identifying the things that matter most. So you may be asking, Brother Bednar, what is the therefore what of your message to us? My answer to this question has two parts. First, Brigham Young University will only fulfill its divine mission as all employees on this campus learn of Christ, listen to his words, and walk in the meekness of his spirit. His invitation to walk in meekness is important for every person who interacts with or supports students in any way at BYU. Meekness is central to and essential for inspiring and experiential learning. And it is the unique combination of meekness and academic excellence that will set Brigham Young University apart from all other institutions of higher education.
Walking in meekness will help us go through the messy middle. Second, each of us should seek continually for heavenly help to avoid and overcome the selfish, negatively competitive, and adulation-seeking pride that is so common in our contemporary world. Personal pride is the greatest obstacle to walking in the meekness of the Lord's Spirit and twists accomplishment into arrogance, scholarship into intellectual priestcraft, and counsel and correction into causes for offense. The instruction from the Lord to Emma Smith in 1830 applies equally to all of us today. The Lord revealed, Continue in the spirit of meekness and beware of pride. Now, the ultimate answers to the question of therefore what are individual in nature and will come to our minds and hearts by the power of the Holy Ghost. They likely will be different for each of us. I now pose four questions to help us seek for those individual answers. One, is the mission of BYU changing me? Or am I trying to change the mission of BYU? Two, how does walking in the meekness of the Lord's Spirit facilitate inspiring and experiential learning? Three, what steps should I take to walk more fully in the meekness of the Lord's Spirit? Four, what can I do to help students to walk more fully in the meekness of the Lord's Spirit? Brothers and sisters, I love you. I appreciate what you are and what you do. And I love Brigham Young University. I thank and commend you for your faithfulness, for your service to the students who come to learn on this campus, for teaching your respective disciplines with professionalism, and for all you do to declare the simple truths of the Lord's restored gospel and to support His Latter-day Church. I invoke upon you this blessing, that with the help of the Holy Ghost, you may develop a strong desire to learn about meekness, that you incrementally and increasingly may become more meek, and that you modestly and confidently will walk in the meekness of the Lord's Spirit. As you do so, you will find rest unto your souls, and you will have peace in Him. And you will be instrumental in helping the students on this campus to be strengthened spiritually, to be enlarged intellectually, to build character, and to be prepared for lifelong learning and service. I witness that Jesus Christ is the living Son of the living God. I know that he lives. I know that he is risen and that he knows and loves us as individuals. Oh, how I yearn to walk with you in the meekness of his spirit. For this blessing I pray, and of these things I testify, in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Growing in the Meekness of Christ's Spirit. We've just heard from Elder David A. Bednar. 
After the break, we'll return with Corey W. Leonard for By Persuasion, Longsuffering, Meekness, and Love. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Growing in the Meekness of Christ's Spirit. Next is Corey W. Leonard, Assistant Director of the David M. Kennedy Center for International Studies at BYU at the time of this address, titled By Persuasion, Longsuffering, Meekness, and Love. The ebb and flow of university life creates constant opportunities for reflection. At our recent graduation ceremonies, we enjoy the chance to meet family and friends of our most recent graduates. These are some of my favorite moments as we recall their foundational undergraduate experiences, such as how they made an important decision, where couples first met, or poignant memories that shaped them. Nearly 18 years ago, my wife Michelle and I had a formative experience, you could say, as undergraduate interns on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. That's where we met. It occurred in an environment that was vibrant and new to us. The two major political parties were locked in the national conversation we call a presidential election. It was an intense experience to see Republicans and Democrats politicking around the country, angling for votes, and the nation's capital felt like the epicenter of the action. Seeing politics up close and in person was sometimes strange and surprising. In addition to hearing from a wide variety of viewpoints, we were able to see the complex mix of policies, parties, and people. We gained new experience watching the media as it conveyed the same news that we were also witnessing firsthand. One Saturday, I spent four long hours in the rain with thousands of volunteers just waiting for a motorcade to pass so we could wave a sign showing support for just a few brief seconds. Another student had the chance to jump on a trampoline with a well-known candidate at his fundraiser. We attended galas and hearings and debates and discussions. We saw glimpses of political stagecraft from behind the scenes. All of this is part of what felt like a national civic theatrical production with the ultimate goal of persuading voters to choose a candidate. Life involves persuasion. Each day we are persuaded and frequently we persuade others. We encounter decisions that force our resolve and judgment. For example, students must respond to a flurry of constant questions. What will I make of my life? What should I study? How will I make a living? How will I make a difference in the world? They may also try to persuade parents to send a little money, professors to reconsider a grade, or someone to consider going on a date with them. But each of us is surrounded by and involved with numerous other discussions and debates for material wants and needs as seen in marketing and consumer society, for the common good through policy and politics, and for the deeper matters of the soul involving faith and conviction. Persuasion is the art of shaping beliefs and decisions and is an essential part of our lives as consumers, citizens, and Latter-day Saints. Persuasion is also a driving force of academic life. You could say that one role of a university is to house the thousands and even millions of ongoing dialogues among learners about the known and the unknown world. Brigham Young University aims to develop students of faith, intellect, and character who have the skills and the desire to continue learning. 
It is in that regard I'd like to explore the notion of persuasion. We recognize that the greatest power on our planet, that power to act in the name of God or priesthood, can only be handled on the principles of righteousness. This concept is part of what President Dieter F. Uchtdorf recently referred to as the owner's manual of the priesthood, and what President Heber J. Grant noted to be one of his most oft-quoted verses in the Doctrine and Covenants. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 121, verses 41 through 42, it reads, No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile. Why are these principles of power and influence included together? What does it say about persuasion, long-suffering, meekness, and love, among other virtues, that makes them essential? And how can they be applied in the myriad of social interactions we have as lifelong learners and disciples? Early in the Book of Mormon, Lehi had a dream in which his family was commanded to obtain critical records on plates of brass. The only problem was that these records were located somewhere other than where they were, and it meant doing something that several of the sons weren't planning on, nor were they enthused about doing, namely going back. Lacking agreement, after consulting one with another, the sons made the decision on who would face Laban by chance, casting lots. Laman was chosen to head back to Jerusalem. He subsequently failed to get the plates and returned to tell his brothers the bad news. At this point, the brothers were finished, but Nephi wasn't willing to give up just yet. He gave them a charge that, as the Lord liveth and as we live, we will not go down unto our father in the wilderness until we have accomplished the thing which the Lord hath commanded us, followed by a series of reasons including the need to be faithful, the context of Jerusalem's wickedness and its imminent destruction, and the key role of the records for linguistic and spiritual continuity. His plea worked. And it came to pass that after this manner of language did I persuade my brethren that they might be faithful in keeping the commandments of God. In this case, Nephi persuaded his brothers to do what they should have already understood was the right thing to do, to go and try again to get the plates. But just like us, they needed to be engaged in a conversation, to be reminded and persuaded. It is interesting to note that for some reason the brothers didn't have a hard time returning to Jerusalem once more to persuade Ishmael and his daughters to join them in the wilderness. Later on, we see how their attitudes changed when they lost their commitment to their father's vision and escalated to violence against their little brother. At that point, their choices were mitigated by an angel. But Nephi's efforts throughout illustrate the process of persuasion and show how dialogue played an important part in Nephi's relationship to his family and his commitment to truth. Today, we might associate persuasion with something different from Nephi's familial entreaties. Jake Honger, a professor of business at Claremont McKenna, addresses common misunderstandings about persuasion. He writes, Persuasion is widely perceived as a skill reserved for selling products and closing deals. It is also commonly seen as just another form of manipulation, devious and to be avoided. Certainly, persuasion can be used in selling, 
and deal-clinching situations, and it can be misused to manipulate people. But exercise constructively into its full potential. Persuasion supersedes sales and is quite the opposite of deception. Effective persuasion becomes a negotiating and learning process through which a persuader leads colleagues to a problem shared solution. Persuasion does indeed involve moving people to a position they don't currently hold, but not by begging or cajoling. Instead, it involves careful preparation, the proper framing of arguments, the presentation of vivid supporting evidence, and the effort to find the correct emotional match with your audience. Indeed, we know that persuasion is a theme that cuts across many different academic and professional fields. And in an even larger sense, persuasion is at the core of the learning process because it changes the way we perceive and understand reality, influencing our attitudes and creating our vision of the world. Learning involves active engagement in introducing, evaluating, and deciding what ideas have merit and what do not. As a proud graduate of this institution, one of my formative learning experiences occurred in the honors courses where Dean Hal Miller took us into a world of new conversations where we could engage in a discussion with some of the greatest minds and on important topics in the world of ideas. We wrestled with Plato, plumbed the Bhagavad Gita, pondered St. Augustine, and wrote alongside Montaigne. Our job as students was to read, question, and determine what was persuasive and what was not. More often than not, we missed the point. Yet Dr. Miller carefully and patiently explained and answered questions as we stumbled along the path of learning. As Latter-day Saints, our spiritual foundation influences all aspects of our learning, professions, and family life. Also, experiencing give and take and intellectual back and forth helps us to increase our understanding and ideally make better decisions, as Hugh Nibley explained in a talk given to Pi Sigma Alpha, the Political Science Honor Society. He notes, a discussion with God is not a case of agreeing or disagreeing with him, who is in a position to do that, but of understanding him. What Abraham, Ezra, and Enoch asked was, why? Socrates showed that teaching is a dialogue, a discussion. As long as the learner is in the dark, he should protest and argue and question, for that is the best way to bring problems into focus, while the teacher patiently and cheerfully explains, delighted that his pupil has enough interest and understanding to raise questions. The more passionate, the more promising. There is a place for discussion and participation in the government of the kingdom." Unquote. But persuasion is merely a tool, and instruments can be used for differing moral purposes. Thus, it seems essential to me that Section 121 places persuasion in close quarters with at least three qualities previously introduced, namely meekness, long-suffering, and pure love. These virtues can modify and direct our persuasive efforts, especially as we interact in a world filled with conflict, strife, and disagreement. Let's consider each virtue separately as we try to understand how they relate to our efforts in persuasion. Defined, long-suffering means an enduring disposition or having endured mental or physical discomfort for a protracted period of time patiently or without complaint. It might seem a stretch to our modern world, but if we hope to persuade others, we must listen to their concerns and create a space for others to engage in conversation, just as Nephi did with his siblings. Orson Scott Card, an LDS author and frequent columnist, recently observed the following. Even within our country, 
Some Latter-day Saints will strongly disagree with others about the actions of our government. Because I have written extensively on political matters, I have received many letters from Saints who disagree with me, asking, how can you hold that opinion and still be a faithful Latter-day Saint? Of course, some of the letters are not so politely worded. I get such letters about equally from the left and the right and about almost every topic I've covered. But the point of freedom is that we should not assume that people who disagree with us are unworthy of full membership in our community or that their voices should not be heard. On the contrary, it is essential that all voices be heard in order to reach wise decisions that take into account the needs and judgments of all people. Students at BYU are especially adept and enjoy new opportunities in social media where an incredibly wide range of viewpoints, ideas, and arguments reside. On occasion, I have watched with horror as my Facebook page becomes the staging ground for a battle of opposing views that mirrors many newspaper discussion boards, sports websites, blogs, and anywhere that open and especially anonymous interaction is allowed. My students tell me that it's appropriate to delete or censor my online friends, but I secretly hope that their inner angels will help these commenters regain a sense of decorum, if not a measure of kindness. Henry David Thoreau wrote, Thaw, with her gentle persuasion, is more powerful than Thor with his hammer. The one melts, the other breaks into pieces. And yet it seems that some of my friends would rather be Nordic superheroes than a force of nature. That's because the language and tone of many comments online preclude a conversation. Discussions become less about respecting or enduring other views and more about making our point heard. These discussion enders may be insensitive responses, but as part of communities, and especially learning communities, they can become deal breakers that replace dialogue with an awkward silence at best and a sharp word at worst, usually without the increase of love we're advised to employ afterward. More importantly, they demonstrate a lack of long-suffering in our demeanor because we don't want to have to listen to something that doesn't fit with our thinking. We recognize that not all ideas are equal or even correct, That is why we need to learn. But being long-suffering increases our chances of gaining understanding, and it keeps us connected to those in the discussion. Clearly, this is a very small part of being long-suffering, as many with greater trials can attest. But this important virtue may give us resolve to find ways to stay connected, be patient, and to try and better understand others. Meekness is another virtue recommended to us, and like the others, is a subject matter unto itself. We know that personal growth occurs best when we submit to God's will. But as President Ezra Taft Benson taught, quote, either we can choose to be humble or we can be compelled, unquote. One way that we can immediately experience our limitations is through cross-cultural interactions in our smaller, more globalized world. Cultural differences are rarely more apparent than when we experience another place firsthand. Last year, our family traveled across Europe, and while contending with different food, language, and environments, mostly in large urban cities, our eight-year-old son Jack concluded that in Turkey, they don't seem to understand our personal space or our family bubble. In fact, he and his younger brothers were regularly pinched and patted, observed and remarked upon, And he wasn't really prepared for all of that attention. Buses were crowded, unlike the one he's used to riding. City streets were filled with a myriad of smells, sights, and sounds that were unfamiliar and even frightening at times. And many things seemed so very different to us, 
from electric plugs to the experience of worshiping with 60 members of the church in a city of 13 million people. In these instances, we can withdraw, retreat, or even become outright defensive. We can also fail to see what is happening before us. But when we approach these new cultural adventures with meekness and humility, we can begin to understand our limitations in new ways. In a letter to Edward Partridge, the prophet Joseph Smith wrote, We ought always to be aware of those prejudices which sometimes so strangely present themselves and are so congenial to human nature against our friends, neighbors, and brethren of the world who choose to differ from us in opinion and in matters of faith. Our religion is between us and our God. Their religion is between them and their God. And Elder Neil A. Maxwell, nearly 30 years ago, addressed this topic here at Brigham Young University, noting, quote, in the ecology of the eternal attributes, these cardinal characteristics are inextricably bound up together. Among them, meekness is often the initiator, the facilitator, and the consolidator. He further explains the link to persuasion in this way. Since God desired to have us become like himself, he first had to make us free to learn, to choose, and to experience. Hence, our humility and teachability are premier determinants of our progress and our happiness. Agency is essential to perfectibility, and meekness is essential to the wise use of agency and to our recovery when we have misused our agency. In contrast, we see in ourselves, brothers and sisters, the unnecessary multiplication of words, not only a lack of clarity, but vanity. Our verbosity is often a cover for insincerity or uncertainty. Meekness, the subtraction of self, reduces the multiplication of words. Without meekness, the conversational point we insist on making often takes the form of I, that spear-like vertical pronoun. Meekness, however, is more than self-restraint. It is the presentation of self in a posture of kindness and gentleness. It reflects certitude, strength, serenity. It reflects a healthy self-esteem and a genuine self-control. Finally, the uber-virtue that guides our persuasion efforts is real love. This may well be the hardest part of a gospel approach because it is so easy for us to become enamored with our own ideas, accomplishments, and interests. It's also quite difficult to love at close range when our family, friends, or colleagues don't appreciate our efforts. And it's even harder still when we face down our real or perceived enemies. Over five years, I attended a number of international United Nations conferences in New York, Nairobi, Geneva, and elsewhere, where I was involved in lengthy negotiations with countries and groups that had opposing views on a number of policy issues. This competition of ideas, common to the sports arena, the courtroom, marketplace, or among the electorate, often led to zero-sum outcomes through long negotiation. Try as we might to break through and find common ground, discussions were difficult, and both sides were regularly frustrated. Some of these differences were structural, but I was struck by the degree to which our opposing sides displayed personal animosity and even open hostility. We occasionally had hard-won victories at the expense of the other side. The lack of empathy was readily apparent and in some ways understandable. Since then, I've often thought about these experiences and what was to be learned. Recently, someone who has been involved in these very issues was interviewed on the radio. In talking about how to address these types of intractable conflicts, she said that as a result of thinking about them over a long period of time, 
she recognized the need for and advocated a type of sportsmanship that seems to me to be an essential part of a Christian approach in such areas. She said, The need to approach others with enthusiasm for difference is absolutely critical to any change. You know I'm the toughest of fighters, and you know I love a good fight, and I love to win. But I think what I've learned is that you have got to approach differences with this notion that there is good in the other, and that if we can't figure out how to do that, and if there isn't the crack in the middle where there are some people on both sides who absolutely refuse to see the other as evil, this is going to continue. Close quote. How do we meekly, patiently, and lovingly engage with others, especially when the stakes are the highest? For me, this gospel idea of love warrants our serious consideration. President Ubdorf observed, We must realize that all of God's children wear the same jersey. Our team is the brotherhood of man. This mortal life is our playing field. Our goal is to learn to love God and to extend that same love toward our fellow man. We are here to live according to his law and establish the kingdom of God. We are here to build, uplift, treat fairly, and encourage all of Heavenly Father's children. There will always be times when we must take a stand for what is right, but I believe that we can try to do so in a loving and genuine manner, avoiding ad hominem and mean-spirited attacks. I recognize that possessing love unfeigned is extremely challenging, but have seen examples throughout my life from my parents, my wife, colleagues, and students that give me hope. Recently, the filmmaker Sidney Lumet passed away. He was known for a remarkable film titled Twelve Angry Men that portrays the compelling transformation of wide-ranging attitudes in a very short period of time. In the film, a young man of low social status has been accused of murdering his father. As the title suggests, twelve jurors are chosen to deliberate his fate, and they bring with them lifetimes of experience, pain, and perspective. The entire 1957 film version takes place in one room and occurs in real time. Initially, it appears to be an open and shut trial, but one lone juror, number eight, played by Henry Fonda, quietly voices his dissenting opinion. He does so through the first part of the film by listening quietly, thoughtfully assessing each juror's view, and asking probing questions. As the film progresses, it becomes clear that he is beginning to persuade other jurors one by one, but the way in which he does it still surprises me. Through continued engagement with the others, including the one last holdout juror, and a great deal of silence and discussion, juror number eight eventually persuades all eleven to the not guilty conclusion. Ultimately, it may be more important how we are persuaded rather than how we persuade. For while changing our mind is important in learning, the opening of our hearts is critical to our salvation. The scriptures teach that we may know truth, be persuaded to do good, and to believe in Christ through the power of the Spirit. Opening our hearts can lead to the greatest blessings. In hymn number 198, we sing that Christ overcame pain, Christ overcame death, and he can help us overcome fear. Perhaps it is fear that limits much of our ability to listen, learn, persuade, and be persuaded by others and by the Holy Spirit of God. I'm grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us a restart in our frequent frailties and pray that we may be able to enjoy the full range of discourse and discussion as Christians in the broader world around us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Growing in the Meekness of Christ's Spirit, with thoughts from Elder David A. Bednar and Corey W. Leonard. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.